Uh, this evening, congregation, in your Bibles, we would invite and encourage you to turn to the Gospel according to John, chapter 20. In your pew Bible, you can find this on page 1,250, and we'll begin reading at verse 24, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. After we read from the Word of God, we'll then turn to the Belgic Confession, article 33, and in your Forms and Prayers book, you can find this article on page 189. We read first, of course, from the inspired Word of God that we believe is infallible and inerrant, From John 20, beginning at verse 24, hear now the word of God. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands. And reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Thus far this evening, our reading from the Word of God. Then Article 33 of the Belgic Confession is entitled The Sacraments. Uh, This section is dealing with what we call ecclesiology, the doctrine or the truths of Scripture, especially as they relate to the church. And we've made our way through the government of the church, and we now come to the sacraments of the church. Article 33 is an introductory article on the sacraments, and it states, we believe that our good God mindful of our crudeness and weakness, has ordained sacraments for us to seal his promises in us, to pledge his goodwill and grace toward us, and also to nourish and sustain our faith. He has added these to the word of the gospel to represent better to our external senses both what he enables us to understand by his word and what he does inwardly in our hearts, confirming in us the salvation he imparts to us. For they are visible signs and seals of something internal and invisible by means of which God works in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So they are not empty and hollow signs to fool and deceive us, for their truth is Jesus Christ, without whom they would be nothing. Moreover, we are satisfied with the number of sacraments that Christ our Master has ordained for us. There are only two, the sacrament of baptism and the Holy Supper of Jesus Christ. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as you can well imagine, over the past uh, several months within our home, uh, there have been talks and there has been the viewing of an engagement ring. Uh, Maybe some of you uh, ladies have been married for a number of years. I want you, along with uh, the men in the congregation, to think back 
uh, when you received your engagement ring? How often did you look at it? What did you think when you looked at it? No doubt there were all sorts of memories that come to your mind. But at the center, at least I hope at the center of the thoughts that a bride, maybe a bride-to-be, maybe a recent bride, maybe a not-so-recent bride, but when a bride looks at the wedding ring, hopefully she has in her mind the bridegroom. And, and doesn't just simply look at the diamond or the gold or the carrots or the cut or the color or the clarity or such things. But hopefully all of those aspects of a wedding ring bring her thought and bring her affections to focus upon the bridegroom. I say this by way of introduction because Many a minister and a theologian has compared the sacraments of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, being to the sacraments of baptism and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, as being similar to a wedding ring, a visible sign, something that can be seen, something that can be handled, that remind the church of the promise the promise that the bridegroom of the church, Jesus Christ himself, has given the church, that he would never leave her, that that he would never forsake her. And we want to consider this evening uh, for our own edification so that we might properly understand the sacraments and use the sacraments. We want to understand something of these sacraments that Christ has given to his bride, the church, And we do so this evening under this theme, our belief concerning the sacraments of the church. We'll notice, first of all, together their nature, secondly, their necessity, and then thirdly, their operation. So our belief concerning the sacraments of the church, first their nature, then secondly, their necessity, and then thirdly, their operation. So their nature. What is a sacrament? And again, we emphasize that if we go back to Scripture and if we bring every thought and every practice in submission to the authority of Scripture, we find in the New Testament that Christ has given only two sacraments to His church. And now, historically, there was much, much debate between the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans and then also the Protestant Reformers on what exactly a sacrament was and how many there were. So the official teachings of the Roman Catholic Church today identify seven sacraments, the Protestant Reformers went back to Scripture and they found the Lord Jesus Christ as the head of the church who alone has the authority to institute someone and give it sacramental status. They found in Scripture two sacraments. So Christ said to the church, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. And he also said, uh, as he broke bread, on the night in which he was betrayed, this do as often as you do in remembrance of me. And those are the two sacraments. And their nature can be identified, first of all, as being something that is holy. And so we often speak about the sacraments as being holy signs and seals. By holy, the word holy, and boys and girls, we use that word all the time in church. And we do so because that word is found over and over and over again in the Bible. 
holy, its basic meaning is that something is set apart for a very special purpose. And Now, I know that uh, maybe this is a, a bit of an antiquated illustration, but uh, my maternal grandmother, uh, she had her everyday plates, and then she had the Sunday afternoon plates. And I don't know if this is still a practice that perhaps uh, some women in the congregation have. You know, you have your common everyday plates, but then you have your special plates for special occasions, for special purposes. That's something of what the idea of the word holy means. Set apart, sanctified for a very special purpose. And so what God did, especially in the person of Jesus Christ, is Jesus Christ, when He instituted the sacraments, He set common elements from everyday life, water, bread, and wine, which would have been the staple items for life in the New Testament era. He took these common elements and He set them apart for a very holy purpose, for a very special use in the church and amongst his churches. And these sacraments are holy only based upon the institution of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are reminded that the church does not need novel inventions. The church needs the humble recognition of what Christ has put in place and why he has put it in place. If the church would be reminded of the holy nature of the sacraments, and if the church would be overwhelmed with the, the purpose of the sacraments, then she would be content with the two sacraments that Christ has given to her. And then all of the novel imaginations and inventions uh, of people would cease to have any type of sway. So when we speak about the sacrament of baptism and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, the first thing we say about them is that they are holy because they have been instituted. And when they have been instituted as holy, then you and I as the followers of Christ, we must highly value them. Of course, we must have a high value for the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God. Uh, but along with that, rightly understood, you and I must have a love for the sacraments, for baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we can reflect then, even as we try to explain the first thing about the nature of the sacraments is they are holy, we can then ask ourselves, do we love the sacrament of baptism? Do we love the sacrament of of the Lord's Supper. We leave the question for your own reflection, but we also give this exhortation that if we properly understand them, then we will indeed love them. A second thing we can say about the nature of the sacraments is that they are signs. Now, we often say that they are holy signs. Uh, signs, we see them uh, all the time. And again, boys and girls, in illustration, uh, you drive down the road, you, you see a sign. And, and maybe you had the opportunity this summer to go on vacation. And uh, now I, I can't uh, remember where all of you went on vacation. Uh, we went back to Michigan a few times. Uh, and, and you see the, the sign when you cross the state line. You see several signs when you cross several state lines. Coming back, of course, then you see the sign that you're now entering Iowa. That, that, that sign, it stands on the state line because you can't see the state line. 
Now, I'm not encouraging anyone to stop on the interstate, but even if you were to stop on the interstate where the state line was, and if you were to look on the pavement or, or look on uh, the median or look on the shoulder of the, the highway and say, well, where's the state line? Well, you, you can't see it. Now, it's real, but you can't see it. But the sign indicates the existence of the invisible state line. So it signifies something that is not perceived by your senses. And and school starting, boys and girls, and you've probably learned about your your senses. And and I try to identify uh, the five of them by memory, but I always seem to uh, lose one of them, at least lose the memory of one of them. But you you think of your, your sight, your smell, your taste, your touch, your hearing. Uh, These are senses by which we become aware of reality around us. And so you look and you see your fellow classmates. And and maybe uh, you eat food and you taste with your senses and you come to some type of a knowledge of your surrounding. Well, the question is, How do we then come to know about the spiritual truths which are at the heart center of the gospel of Christianity? Because when you think of the the basic, most essential truths of Christianity, it involves this, the knowledge of one triune God. But now can you see God? Well, not in our current state. And when you think of the benefits or the blessings that belong to the Christian faith based upon the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we think especially in this connection of talking about the sacraments, of the benefit of the new birth or of regeneration that Christ spoke of in in John 4. But can you see the new birth with your senses? You can't because it's spiritual in nature. And it's amazing Uh, the advancements that the medical community uh, has made. And so you can go uh, underneath an MRI, uh, and they can, not literally, but with the MRI, they they can take pictures, and they can slice a, a part of your body, and they can look very, very closely, and they can see all types of things within your body. But if you were to go, and if you were to ask, could I have an MRI of my soul to see whether or not it is regenerated, the medical community would have to say, well, we we can't do that. That's spiritual. It's real, but it's spiritual. So how do we perceive the reality of these truths? And if you were to go to the most advanced medical community and say, "Would would you evaluate me and would you tell me for certainty if my sins are forgiven? Well, they would have to say, we we can't do that. We don't have any medical imaging equipment that's able to do that. Now, some people uh, speak about uh, the cancer cloud. An individual perhaps is diagnosed with cancer and undergoes surgery or treatments, and the treatments and the surgery is successful, and so the doctors give them a clean bill of health, and yet there's what patients refer to as the cancer cloud always lurking in the back of their minds. What if it comes back. And so usually annual tests are given. But there's no test where the doctor can say, yes, we've analyzed 
your soul, and there's no sign of any guilt for your sins. But our soul wants to know. And our soul needs to know. And that's why Christ has graciously given us these signs. And not only signs, but also seals. Uh, Now, by seals here, boys and girls, we're not talking about the animal uh, seal, uh, but rather a seal that is imprinted into an official document. You might think of a driver's license. So maybe when you go home, you can ask your, your dad or your mom to see their, their driver's license or uh, a marriage license. Or perhaps uh, if your parents have graduated uh, from uh, school, they, they have a diploma, and there will be a seal affixed on there, usually a raised seal that marks the authenticity of the degree or of the license. And that's what a seal does. It's borrowed, of course, from the practice of ancient rulers, emperors, and when they would write some legal decree or some legal order to prove that it had really come from the emperor, they would have a signet ring, and hot wax would be taken, and it would be placed on this document, and then the king's seal would be pressed in it so that when whoever received the message, they could look and they could say, yes, this is authentic. See, it bears the king's seal. And so also in our own day, uh, things are notarized to prove the validity of the document. So, so think of the sacraments as the triune God coming, especially the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and taking His gracious, loving hand, as it were, and impressing, this is true, and this is real. The work of regeneration. The work of the forgiveness of sins. And so when we speak about sacraments, we need to be cautioned that we don't just speak about these in a kind of far-off type of a way, but that these are holy signs and seals that Christ has given to the church. But why did He give them? And that transitions us into our second point, their necessity. Uh, We want to first of all clarify that when we speak about their necessity, we are not implying that the sacraments are essential for salvation. We make this argument, if you would, based upon the repentant thief on the cross. He, of course, had no opportunity to receive baptism, and he never partook of the Lord's Supper. But we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he received salvation. For Christ himself ministered to the repentant thief and said, today you will be with me in paradise. So the sacraments, their necessity is not that they are essential for the conferring of grace. We say this because, of course, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that the sacrament of baptism is necessary for the forgiveness of original sin. And so that if an infant dies without being baptized, that infant goes to some holding place uh, known in the Latin as infant's limbum, uh, uh, neither hell nor heaven, and the infant child is then eternally sentenced to this in-between state. And the Protestant reformers went back to the Scriptures and said, no, we find no evidence of such a place. We do find evidence that Jesus Christ received little children, laid His hands on them, and blessed them. And so the sacraments are not essentially necessary for the obtaining of salvation, but they are necessary for the well-being of our faith. And that's why we chose to read from John 20, 
John 20, verse 25 and 27 illustrates why the sacraments are necessary. And we might just simply say the sacraments are necessary, first of all, because of our earthly nature. Uh, We are constituted with a soul, but also with a body. And the experience of life as we have experienced thus far has only been through our body. Now, there is conscious life only in the soul in the intermediate state after one's physical death, but we don't know what exactly that's like. The only experience that we have of living is living body and soul, and that's the experience that Thomas had. And Thomas's knowledge had come through his senses. Uh, now, oftentimes, Thomas is given a bad rap. When you think of Thomas, the disciple Thomas, if you have Bible knowledge, you think, oh yes, doubting Thomas, most famously known for his statement, I will not believe unless I see. But Thomas, for all of his weakness, was a faithful Christian, a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. But he had an earthly nature. He believed things that he heard, things that he saw, things that he could handle. In many ways, Thomas is just like you and just like me. And God understands because God has created us that way. Who is it that gave us our senses? It's God Himself. And God gave us our senses so that we might learn and come to know many, many things about His creation, but many, many things also about Him. And so God understands our constitution, and He understands also our weakened constitution. And so in His infinite knowledge and perfect wisdom, God condescends or accommodates Himself down to our level. And this is why our Belgic Confession picks up, and I just want to point your direction to that again in the opening line, we believe that our good God, and I just want to stop there for a moment, and of course this is a biblical truth. Remember Jesus Christ interacting uh, with the individual who approached him and said, good master, and he says, why do you call me good? There's only one who is good, and that is God. But I just want to pause here for this point of application. Do we believe that God is good? Do you believe that God is good? That God is exactly who He should be and that God does exactly that which He should do? God is good. Now, there are many trials and tribulations in life. Many trials and tribulations that at times cause people to grumble and complain almost without ceasing also within the church. And we stop and we pause and we say, in the midst of such grumbling and complaining, is there the recognition then by a person that God is good? The Belgic Confession opens by the statement that God is an overflowing fountain of all good. Now remember, this was written by Guido de Bray, a Reformed minister who eventually would be martyred for the faith. We believe that God is good. That ought to underline all that we do. Corporately as a congregation. And and 
wouldn't, and I understand different personalities, but if a congregation was really, really, really convinced that God was good, what type of impact would you think that that would have upon a congregation? Wouldn't they be characterized by joy, by thanksgiving? And I'm not saying we're not, I'm just helping us in self-reflection. Isn't this theme woven all throughout the book of Psalms? God is good. As you think about the events gone in the week past, and as you anticipate the events that lie in the week ahead, remember God is good. And He's the overflowing fountain of all good. And in His goodness, He knows also how to accommodate Himself to our weaknesses. We do not have a high priest, says the book of Hebrews, who is without knowledge of our constitution. But we have a high priest who can sympathize with us, made like us in all points with the exception of sin. And the necessity of the sacraments is heightened given our weak faith. Uh, One forefather writes, the faith and spiritual life of God's people often are weak. And we see that evidenced in Thomas. He has a true faith, but he doesn't have a perfect faith. And Jesus Christ graciously condescends. That word condescends just means to come down to Thomas's level. You can think of, you know, perhaps the difference between a good teacher and a poor teacher. I don't know much about teaching, but I know that a student who says, that person must be a really good teacher because I didn't understand anything they said. Well, I want to help you out if you're that student. That doesn't mean that the teacher is a good teacher. In fact, it probably means that the teacher is a poor teacher. And the same goes for preachers. If you ever say, I didn't understand a word he said, he must be a really good preacher. No. A good teacher is able to take concepts, truths, and communicate them effectively, and a large part of that communication process is accommodation to the level of the student. And when one really masters a subject as a teacher, then they should be able to break that subject down and bring it and communicate it at the level that the student is at. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ as the perfect teacher does. Notice how gently he deals with Thomas, just as he gently dealt with Peter, but in a different aspect. He doesn't come to Thomas and say, Thomas, I'm tired of your doubting. I can't believe you can't believe. Thomas, how many times did I tell you? How many times didn't we go over this? I explained to you very clearly what I was going to do. I was going to suffer. I was going to die. I was going to rise again. You should have gotten it by now, Thomas. I hope you never had a teacher who taught that way. But there are teachers who have taught that way. It's absolutely demoralizing to the student. The student says, whatever you have to teach, I no longer want to learn. But Jesus comes, and there's a perfect parallelism between the words. Notice what Thomas says, first of all, in verse 25. Unless I see his hands, 
the print of the nails. Now notice what Jesus says in verse 27, reach your finger here and look at my hands. There's a perfect knowledge and there's a perfect accommodation. Thomas, you said you needed to see my hands. Look at my hands. Thomas, you said that you needed to put your hand on my side. Put it on my side. And then the gentle pastoral encouragement, do not be unbelieving but believing. The point that we're trying to emphasize is when we think about the sacraments, and especially when we have the sacraments administered in our midst behind, as it were, the the waters of baptism and behind the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper. We ought to be fixated with a gracious and a good God who comes to us in all of our weaknesses and says, I will accommodate myself to your tendency to doubt. Here, look, see, touch, taste, even perhaps in some instances, hear. Hear the water of baptism. Hear the pouring out of the wine. In so many gracious and good ways, Jesus Christ comes down, not only to accomplish our salvation, but also to assure us because He knows our weaknesses. And that's why there's that wonderful line in the form for the administration of the Lord's Supper, that we do not come to the table of the Lord to testify that we have perfect faith. No, we we, we come testifying that we have weak faith. But we don't have to be discouraged by that fact. We can be encouraged that Jesus Christ knows the weakness of our faith and has taken the steps of providing a means to minister even to the weakness of our very faith. And so the sacraments are necessary uh, to testify with holy signs and seals about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the accomplishment of our salvation because of our earthly nature and the weakness of our faith. Well, what then about their operation? In our third point, how do the sacraments work? The first thing we want to say is that it is mysterious. Mysterious, uh, not in the sense of some type of magic, but mysterious in the sense of it's a spiritual operation. And and so much ink was spilt over this and has continued to be spilt over this between uh, the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans and the Protestants. We simply suffice to say the Holy Spirit accomplishes the work of strengthening the faith of a sincere recipient of the sacrament. Now, how exactly does the Holy Spirit do that? Well, There again, we refer to the words of Jesus Christ, this time to Nicodemus in John 3. The Spirit is like the wind. It operates as it operates, beyond our comprehension. And I love to teach and then also to ask uh, those young people who come to make profession of faith, do you believe that the Spirit works through the sacraments? And I hope that they say yes. And then I ask, do you understand that perfectly? And I anticipate them saying no. And that's exactly right. Do I understand exactly how faith is strengthened through the sacrament? I don't. I know that the Spirit does it in the hearts of the people of God. But we believe that He works even if we don't understand exactly how He works. You see, this is the essence of faith. Perhaps not understanding how God does something, but believing that He does do something. 
through the work of the Holy Spirit, the Word and the sacrament cooperate together. The Spirit uses the sacrament in connection with the Word, always with the Word, because the Word, and and this is a good test also to examine the preaching of the Word. The sacraments, they, they don't come with some different message than the preached Word. You might say that they are the stamp, the sign, and the seal appealing to the other four senses. So the preaching of the Word comes especially to the ear, to the sense of hearing. And then the sacraments support the testimony of the Word of God concerning the work of the Lord Jesus Christ especially. And so what I say that this is a good test, the testimony of baptism, the testimony of the Lord's Supper ought to simply be a stamp of affirmation upon the message of the preaching of the Word. And you see how inconsistent it would be to have a a, a sermon that didn't focus on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and then have the sacrament come. The people would say, well, wait, you preached about this, but then we had the sacrament about that. That's why we preach Christ and Him crucified, because that's the testimony of the waters of baptism. The waters of baptism testify that there is a new birth, a new spiritual birth, regeneration, that we're born, that we're conceived, dead in our sins and in our trespasses. And yes, maybe we want to say, well, you know, there's infant regeneration. John the Baptist uh, leaped in his mother's womb. We understand that. But there still was a passing from spiritual death to spiritual life. And when we think about the Lord's Supper, uh, what does it testify to you? It testifies to you that the the body of the Lord Jesus Christ was broken underneath the sufferings of the wrath of God, the penal substitutionary atonement. And I well understand that these words, concepts, doctrines, and truths are, are, are not so emphasized in our day. And I well understand that many will say, you're still preaching that bloody doctrine of a suffering and dying Christ? And we say, yes, we are. We don't know what else to preach. I'm not going to just simply fill up your Sunday evening by giving you some encouraging message that if you go out with all that you can muster within yourself and tackle your Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays, you'll make it to Friday and everything will be great. But I will tell you and I can tell you that the waters of baptism And the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper testify that Jesus Christ has been crucified for the forgiveness of sins, and that there is life, spiritual life, eternal life, based upon that work. And that is what will get you through your Mondays and your Tuesdays and your Wednesdays, and get you through the Fridays get you through all of the days into the eternal days. And so the sacraments cooperate, work as the Spirit blesses them, along with the preaching of the Word of Christ and Him crucified. And that has to be the central focus. I understand, I well understand, so many debates within the churches, some necessary, some completely unnecessary, concerning the sacraments. I've sat and I've listened to people debate vehemently whether the minister ought to sprinkle water three times or only one time. Completely indifferent. 
I've sat and listened to people debate, well, should it be only one cup for the Lord's Supper? Should it be eight cups for the Lord's Supper? Should it be individual cups for the Lord's Supper? Well, how large should the cups be? How small should they be? Completely indifferent. And the tragic thing is, that amidst these debates, individuals have at times lost sight of the centrality of the person of Jesus Christ, of, of His sufficient work for salvation. And if we ever find ourselves quibbling about such minute little matters, practicalities, to where our sight of Christ is eclipsed, well, then we need to go back, of course, to Scripture, but we can be helped in going back to Scripture by also going back to our confessions. And you'll notice on top of page 190, these sacraments are not empty and hollow signs to fool and deceive us, for their truth is Jesus Christ, without whom they would be nothing. The water that is placed in that baptism font apart from Jesus Christ, is nothing but water. And the bread that is put there on the Lord's table, apart from Jesus Christ, is nothing but bread. And the wine, apart from Jesus Christ, nothing but wine. And you can extend this and you can say, everything that we would ever do as a congregation apart from our faith being fixated on the person and work of Jesus Christ, means absolutely nothing. Hollow, empty facades. But in Christ, it means everything. And so I trust and I hope and I pray that personally and also as a congregation, that we are fixated on Jesus Christ his person, and his work, both now and for all of eternity. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are such a good and gracious God, and that you understand us better even than we understand ourselves. We thank you that in your grace you are compassionate, that you accommodate yourselves to our weaknesses, that you do not scold us for our slowness to understand that you do not verbally berate us uh, when our faith is weak, but that you come and you minister to us in very tangible, with sensible signs and seals, showing us, appealing to our sight and to our taste and to our touch, the reality of the spiritual work of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so, Lord, give us as a congregation a maturing understanding of the sacraments, but then also may that be expressed in a diligent and a proper use of the sacraments. For, Lord, we know that if a bride talks much about an engagement ring but does not wear it, her words become merely empty. And so may we properly use the sacraments to the glory of your name and to the well-being of our soul. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.